The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Barian, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secadus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at a window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asiles, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asiles, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Good job with all those names. Well done. (laughs) Let's pray this morning. Father, what a blessing it is to be gathered together around your word with the opportunity to immerse ourselves in these things this morning. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present and at work in our midst, causing the truths and the the teachings that we encounter to find a place in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of the things I appreciate about children is uh, their honesty, right? 
you never have to wonder what children are thinking or what they want, because usually it's pretty obvious. And this is especially the case when it comes to receiving things. Uh, For example, when a child receives a card, what are they looking for? Money, right? I mean, they'll rip open that envelope and open up the card, and if there's money inside, their eyes will light up. And uh, adults, the same way as well, right? Sometimes, for the the children at least, the card might even fall to the floor, but they don't care because they're so excited about the money. At least adults know how to hide it a little bit better, right? We can hide our excitement and act just really interested in the card and as if the money is almost incidental. But one thing we all have in common is that we all like receiving gifts. And yet we find an important truth stated at uh, the end of Acts 20, specifically in verse 35, which tells us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's counterintuitive, and yet it's true. There's more joy to be found in giving than there is to be found in receiving. Now, we're not officially going to be looking at that verse until next week when we cover the second half of Acts 20. And yet that truth, that it is more blessed to give than to receive, is quite relevant for our main passage this morning of Acts 20, 1 through 16. Even though that truth isn't explicitly stated until the next passage, it's exemplified quite powerfully in this passage. The fact is that God invites us into a life of joyful giving. That's the main idea of the passage this morning. God invites us into a life of joyful giving. Now, this passage isn't an eloquent theological treatise or a masterfully written essay on the subject of giving. It's a simple, straightforward narrative. And yet it's a narrative that helps us see what the joy of giving looks like and by implication calls us to that kind of a life. And you'll see what I mean as we go along. First, look with me at verses 1 through 6. And you may remember, by the way, from the previous chapter that a riot has just taken place in the city of Ephesus as a result of Paul's missionary activities. Uh, By telling people about Jesus, Paul was causing the local silversmiths who manufactured idolatrous statues to lose business. And they didn't like that very much. So they started a riot. We then read this in verses 1 through 6. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven 
days. So if you look at this map here, you can see the city of Ephesus, where Paul's been ministering for several years now, close to the center of the map. However, verse 1 records him departing from Ephesus for the region of Macedonia in the upper left corner of the map. Verse 2 then records him traveling south from Macedonia to Greece, ending up eventually in the city of Corinth. That's the farthest point Paul reaches in his missionary, uh, on this missionary journey. And then after he reaches Corinth, the text records how he retraces his steps back through Macedonia on his way eventually to Jerusalem. Now, you may be wondering, what does all of this, how, how does all this relate to the subject of giving? And that's a fair question. Notice in verses 3 and 4, especially verse 4, all the people who are said to be with Paul as he travels back through the region of Macedonia on his return trip. It says he's accompanied by a guy named Sopater from Berea, two guys from Thessalonica named Aristarchus and Secundus, a man from Derby named Gaius, of course, Timothy, his longtime missionary companion, and two men from churches in Asia named Tychicus and Trophimus. Don't you think that's a lot of people? And isn't it interesting how they're all from different cities? Kind of makes you want to do a little digging, doesn't it? Maybe we should. And as we do that, we discover that the reason all of these men are traveling with Paul on his way back to Jerusalem is because they're carrying a love offering that Paul had collected from all of these different churches for the purpose of helping the believers in the Jerusalem church who were struggling to get by. Uh, the reason they were struggling to get by is that a severe famine had hit uh, Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, the, the politicians of Jerusalem were extremely stingy and didn't want to give everyone stimulus checks. And so these Christians in Jerusalem, who had already probably been impoverished by the significant persecution they had faced, were now under even more financial pressure because of this famine. And so Paul organizes a huge love offering among the churches he started across the Roman Empire in order to help these Christians in Jerusalem. He writes about this love offering in several places, including 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, where he states, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you, Church of Corinth, are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And uh, back in verses 3 and 4 of our main passage, that's exactly what's happening. Paul has now collected that money and ensuring that it finds its way safely to Jerusalem. Obviously, it wasn't really an option to wire funds from one location to another back then. And so they had to be physically transported. And as a way of demonstrating his integrity, Paul doesn't transport the money himself, 
but rather has representatives from many of these churches accompany him and be the ones to actually transport the money from their respective churches. That's why we find all of these names written in verse 4. And it's from this whole endeavor that we're provided with what is perhaps the richest and most detailed teaching on the subject of giving in the entire Bible. You see, as Paul's traveling through Macedonia on his way to Corinth in order to collect the offering from the, the Corinthian church, he writes the letter that we now know as 2 Corinthians. So don't miss that. 2 Corinthians was written during Paul's journey to Corinth, recorded in our main passage. And I believe our study of our main passage can be enriched by taking a little bit of time to look at uh, some of the principles for generosity that Paul taught as he was on the journey recorded in this passage. So, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we discover 10 principles for generosity that I'd like to briefly share with you this morning. I, of course, won't be able to elaborate on these, so I'll more or less have to simply mention them and show you where they are in the biblical text. Feel free to write these down if you can write fast enough, or you can certainly listen to this message again online. The first principle is that giving is the fruit of God's grace in a person's heart. Giving is the fruit of God's grace in a person's heart. In 2 Corinthians 8.1, Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And then goes on to describe their generous giving. So Paul refers to giving as something that originates with the grace of God. Second, giving should be an overflow of our joy. As Paul writes in the next verse, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So why did the churches of Macedonia give the way they did? They had, Paul says, an abundance of joy, meaning more joy than they could hold inside of them. And this joy overflowed in the form of their generous giving. Giving should be an overflow of our joy in Christ. Third, there's a time for sacrificial giving. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. In other words, they figured out how much they could comfortably give without impacting their lives too much. And then they gave more than that. Their giving was beyond their means in the sense that it was sacrificial. Today, what that might look like is sacrificing the purchase of a new vehicle or a desired vacation or even something more significant than that so that we can engage in a higher level of giving. Fourth, giving should be first and foremost 
an act of worship toward God. In verses 4 and 5, Paul describes how the Macedonians were, quote, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the Macedonians were just trying to make Paul happy by their giving. But we're giving as a heartfelt act of worship toward God. Then the fifth principle is that the genuineness of our love is seen in our willingness to give. After Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate the Macedonians in their generous giving, he states in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You see, biblical love is about a lot more than sentimental feelings. It's about serving and helping the people around us. Especially brothers and sisters in the faith. So the genuineness of our love is seen in our willingness to give. Sixth, Jesus is the ultimate example of generous giving. Paul writes in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus left his riches to become poor in the sense that he left the glories of heaven in order to come to this sin-cursed earth for the purpose of saving us. He even died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we, by his poverty, might become rich in the sense of possessing all of the spiritual blessings that he purchased on the cross. So Jesus is the ultimate example of generosity as the one who gave really all he had to give, even his very life, for the sake of his people. Then moving forward from 2 Corinthians 8 to 2 Corinthians 9, we find the seventh principle for generosity, which is that bountiful sowing results in bountiful reaping. Verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You know, this is a pretty basic rule of agriculture and pretty universal. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a farmer of thousands of acres or just a, a suburban gardener. The more seed you sow, the more harvest you reap. Eighth, God loves a cheerful giver. That wording is taken directly from verse 7, where Paul states that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God wants us to give, 
not out of a sense of guilt or obligation, but out of a genuine love for others and a desire to help them and ultimately a desire to see God glorified. Number nine, God promises to provide for the needs of those who give. Verses eight through 10. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So notice, I know there's a lot there, but notice how God will not only supply your need for sowing, your your seed for sowing rather, but will also multiply that seed. It's a wonderful cycle. The more seed you sow, the more of a harvest you'll reap. And the more of a harvest you reap, the more seed you'll have to sow again. And then finally, the 10th principle for generosity is that God entrusts us with wealth so that we can give it away. That's his purpose for giving it to us. As Paul states in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So the reason God gives us monetary blessings isn't so we can just hoard all those blessings for ourselves, but rather so we can use those blessings to be generous. So that's a brief overview of what Paul writes about giving while he's on the journey, recorded in verses 1 and 2 of our main passage in Acts 20. And I'd encourage you, in light of all of that, to just Think about how you can implement those principles in your own life. Um, One way in which we give, of course, is by giving to the church, since that's uh, the central mechanism, really, that God has established to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so think for a moment. What is your next step in terms of giving? If you are a Christian... Um, and are a part of this church. So two qualifications, right? So if you're not a Christian or not a part of this church, I'm not talking to you. But if you are a Christian and are a part of this church and are not yet giving consistently, then let me encourage you to start giving consistently. That is to, to start giving at regularly scheduled intervals that are established in your personal budget. If you don't have a budget, then see me, I'd be glad to connect you with someone in the church who can help you establish a budget. So maybe that's your next step. Or if you're already giving on a consistent basis, let me encourage you to start following the biblical model of giving a tithe, a word that means tenth, so 10% of your income. So that is the level of giving that we find not commanded necessarily in the Bible, but commended, consistently modeled in the Bible, not only in the Old Testament law, but even outside of the law, such as Abraham in Genesis 14, 20, and Jacob committing to a lifestyle of tithing, and 
Genesis 28, 22. And so maybe that's a good next step for you to pursue. And if you're already doing that, then maybe your next step is to view a tithe not as the limit of your generosity, but rather simply as the beginning of what generosity might look like for you. That's the mentality that certainly seems to be at the very heart of Paul's teaching on giving. A joyful desire to excel in our generosity to the fullest extent that we have opportunity to do so. And I'll just tell you that Becky and I know from experience the thrill of consistently giving above a tithe and actually pretty significantly above a tithe. And I can tell you it is an absolute joy for us to do that. And yet as we continue going through our main passage of Acts 20, we see that the giving of our wealth isn't the only kind of giving there is. God invites us into a life of joyful giving, we've said in our main idea, not only of our wealth, but also of our very selves to the people around us. Look at verses 7 through 12. And remember, by the way, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, right? And, and he makes a pit stop in the city of Troas, where it says that he spends seven days. And here's what we read in verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, to address the most memorable feature of this passage first, we read about how poor Eutychus just could not quite make it through Paul's lengthy sermon. And in all fairness, it was a really long sermon. Uh, Paul knew, I guess, that he was only there for a few days and wanted to make the most of it, and so he, he kept on talking, it says, until midnight. And now keep in mind also that he didn't start at 10.30 a.m. like we do for our Sunday service, all right? Back then, Christians actually would meet on Sunday evenings for their worship service after a full day of work, by the way, which no doubt also contributed to Eutychus's drowsiness. But even for a Sunday evening service, I mean, midnight is still really late. So I don't know how many, how many slides Paul's PowerPoint was, but it must have been a massive file. And uh, also, it didn't help, as the text says, that there were a lot of lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, which means there would have been a lot of smoke and fumes, since these would have been oil-burning lamps. And so if you put all of that together, the full day of manual labor, 
and a long sermon and a stuffy room, you can kind of see how Eutychus let (laughs) this desire for sleep get the best of him. So contrary to what some may prefer, this does not give any of you an uh, excuse to fall asleep in church. I may have to throw something at you. I'm not sure what. But uh, unless, of course, you've worked a night shift and the air conditioner's broken and I keep talking for six hours, which I've never quite hit the six-hour mark, I don't believe, then we might cut you some slack if I ever do. And uh, yet we actually haven't even come to what my favorite part of the text is yet. My favorite part is how after Paul raises Eutychus from the dead, he just keeps going right on with his message, right? He was not, he straight up preaches until daybreak through the night. I guess, I don't know, he already had their undivided attention at that point by raising this guy from the dead. So I guess he wanted to make the most of it. And and I will say, though, that one of the verbs used for Paul's speaking here is dialegami, from which we get the English word dialogue. And so it's not like Paul was the only one talking this whole time. Much of this was probably closer to an extended Q&A session than it was to a traditional sermon. But still, I mean, that is a long time. And yet it gives us a glimpse. Here's the point of all this. It gives us a glimpse into the passion that Paul had to minister to the people God put in his path. Paul was pouring himself out for the sake of these dear brothers and sisters in the faith. And he doesn't stop. The subsequent verses, verses 13 through 16, record the next leg of Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. And yet there as well, we see Paul pouring himself out in ministry. For example, instead of taking the time at his next stop, the city of Miletus, to rest, Paul can't pass up the opportunity to invest in others there and give the Ephesian elders a final word of encouragement that we'll look at next Sunday. And so the picture we get of Paul's life is one of him selflessly giving of himself and pouring himself out for the sake of those around him. His ambition, unlike that of so many today, wasn't to live an easy life or a comfortable life, but rather to essentially give his life away for the sake of other people. And that should lead us to examine our own lives. Right? How are we using the very limited time on this earth that God has given us? Are we using it merely for our own gratification? Or are we seeking to glorify God by investing our lives in the people around us? Friends, God invites us into a life of joyful giving, not only of our money, but also of our very selves in ministry to the people around us. Now, I'm reminded of a great quote by John Wesley, a theologian and preacher from the 18th century. He said, do all the good you can. Oh, did the mic start working? That was really loud. I'm going to keep it on for those online, and if you're able to turn the volume down in person, I guess I can lower my voice at this point, point. and if we need to, we can kick the air conditioning back on. We turned it off so we could hear better. 
So Paul, if you're able to kick that back on as long as the, um, the mic keeps working. But uh, I'll, back to the quote by John Wesley. He says, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. <laughs> Got that? All right. And by the way, Wesley didn't just say that. He lived it. If you uh, look at his journal, it's estimated, uh, people have actually gone through and estimated that he traveled about 250,000 miles over the course of his preaching ministry. And of course, that would not be in a vehicle. That would be on horseback. And not only that, but according to his journal, he preached more than 40,000 sermons. So that's around 15 sermons per week for 50 years. I'm sure he must have preached some of the same sermons again. I don't think he prepared 15 different sermons each week, but he did preach around uh, 15 sermons a week for his 50-year preaching ministry. Now, of course, uh, first of all, please don't hold me to this standard, right? One is good enough for me, but uh, uh, few, if any of us, have the exceptional energy or stamina of a man like John Wesley, and that's okay. It really is, because we're only responsible for what we do have in terms of energy and opportunity, not what we don't have. And yet, how are you using what you do have, what God has given to you? Like Paul in Acts 20, are you giving of yourself and investing your life in the lives of people around you? And by the way, in case you need some ideas about how you can do that, we have actually put together uh, this booklet that some of you may have seen before, especially if you've gone through the membership information class recently. But this is a booklet that just gives you some very practical ideas about how you can be intentional about investing in the lives of people around you. It's called The Six Most Overlooked Ways to Serve. And uh, it just talks about being intentional, about engaging people on Sunday mornings, practicing hospitality, uh, seeking to develop discipling relationships, pursuing those whom you haven't seen in church lately, comforting those who are hurting, and starting an evangelistic Bible study. So you may not have the platform for ministry that the Apostle Paul had or that John Wesley had. Right? You may not be getting preaching opportunities all over the country. However, this booklet is written to demonstrate that you nevertheless have incredibly significant opportunities to minister in meaningful ways in your life right now. You have those opportunities. And by the way, if anyone wants a copy of this booklet, there are a stack of them. Uh, available on the back resource table, so do feel free to pick one up as you're leaving this morning. And the reason we should give of ourselves in all of these ways is ultimately because of the way in which God has given to us. You know, we've said that the main idea of this passage in Acts 20 is that God invites us into a life of joyful giving. And yet he's given us not only that invitation, 
but also an example. The greatest giving verse in the Bible is not, I don't think, in 2 Corinthians 8 or 2 Corinthians 9. I think the greatest giving verse in the Bible, you see it up there, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave his own son to purchase our rescue. See, the Bible teaches that every single one of us has rebelled against the God of the universe. We've done things our way instead of God's way. And in so doing, made ourselves deserving of God's judgment. That's what John means when he talks about perishing, right? That's what we deserve. And yet, God loved us so much that he didn't leave us in our wretched and miserable condition. But instead, he gave, he gave his own son for the sake of his people to come to this earth to rescue us. And the way Jesus accomplished that rescue was by living a life of perfect conformity with his Father's will, and then by dying on the cross to pay for all of the sins we've ever committed or ever will commit. Fully satisfying the wrath and the justice of God the Father. Then three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead in order to open the door for us also to share in his victory over sin and death. However, we don't get to share in all these blessings automatically. As John says, it's those who believe in Jesus who will not perish but have eternal life. So believing in Jesus means not just that we give intellectual assent to certain facts about Jesus, but that we put our wholehearted trust in Jesus and our full confidence in Jesus to, as our only hope of rescue. That means renouncing all of our misguided and prideful attempts to earn God's favor through our own effort and instead looking to Jesus as the one who can do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to save us from our sins and make us right with God. And so a right relationship with God isn't a feat we achieve, but rather a gift we are given. And it's this extraordinary gift that God has given to us that motivates us to give to others.